Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement, and today we will visit with Jamie and Marin Shokir, who have co-authored the book Authentic Conversations. Following our interview today, you are invited to log in to LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends The Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are also members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview, as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join this group and listen and discuss with you. I'm Susan Stan, and I'd like to introduce the Shokiers. Jamie and Marin Shokier are managing partners of Henning Shokier and Associates and co-authors of Authentic Conversations, Moving from Manipulation to Truth and Commitment. A critically acclaimed business book, Authentic Conversations challenges conventional wisdom on key business and workplace practices and presents concrete ways to, to consciously make ordinary conversations the primary driver of work for, uh, workforce change. Jamie has advised hundreds of public and private sector organizations from global 1,000 companies to entrepreneurial and nonprofit enterprises and aided in strengthening their results by distributing organizational power and influence. Marin spent the first part of her career as a reporter, editor, and senior manager at major daily newspapers in Arizona and Florida. She has also taught journalism at private universities in Argentina and Peru. Her 25 years of experience in managing, training, and teaching provided a rich background for her work as a consultant who helps organizations create cultures of accountability through employee engagement. Both authors are skilled, popular media sources, having appeared in dozens of leading print and online publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Investors Business Daily, Huffington Post, Women for Hire, and CNN Money. Drawing on more than 25 years of experience as organizational consultants, their book offers examples of parent, child, and adult-adult workplace conversations in a variety of settings, circumstances, and industries. They also provide a hands-on guide, including sample scripts for dealing with a host of potentially difficult conversations. Authentic Conversations goes to the heart of why so many people today are disengaged, uninspired, uncommitted to their organization's success. It challenges the conventional wisdom about managing people and sets out specific concrete ways to consciously make conversations the primary driver of change. To get a copy of Authentic Conversations, you can visit www.authenticconversations.com. So I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us on Bookends today. Marin and Jamie, welcome. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Susan. Well, Marin, um, uh, I'd like to begin with you but encourage you both to just uh, jump in uh, throughout this process and, and share your thoughts. But I, I, I uh, began your book, of course, and, and read the very familiar-sounding story about a CEO named Joe in your book's introduction, which um, you titled The Dangerous Book for Adults, which I just loved. Can you explain how Joe's story illustrates this way of framing your book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, To set the context, Joe was the CEO and publisher of a major newspaper on the East Coast. And in that market, they were facing all the troubles that a lot of newspapers uh, were facing. Uh, They were losing circulation, advertising dollars, um, and in addition, they, they had a, a big demographic shift. So much of their audience was no longer English-speaking but Spanish-speaking. And so this had created a lot of financial difficulties for the newspaper. In this setting, the employees were sort of uh, fearful about potentially losing their jobs, and they were also angry, and they sort of had the attitude that, you know, management got us into this mess. How are they going to fix it? Joe who was just really the nicest guy, he had scheduled a big meeting, interdepartmental meeting for the afternoon, but he spent the morning visiting with smaller groups of employees and, you know, fielding some tough questions. What are you going to do about this? We're in trouble. You know, are we going to lose our jobs? 
And throughout the morning was very reassuring, told them not to worry about things, just to focus on doing their jobs, and that, uh, you know, he and the management teams were going to look at the problem and come up with the solutions, and he was very confidently reassuring throughout the morning. Well, this, this is the conversation that we call in the book caretaking, mm-hmm. and it is dangerous because what it does is it tells the people who work in an organization um, that it's not really their responsibility for stepping up and helping solve the problems, that they don't need to bring all their uh, creativity and energy to work, and that really all of the future resides in the hands of a few powerful people at the top. In the end, the, the good news was that the story, the conversation changed, and Joe decided that he would take a different tack in the big meeting. And in that meeting, he made a choice to acknowledge the problems, and he was frank about the difficult issues that the paper faced. Then he owned his own contribution to the problems. Uh, and in fact acknowledged that he had been reassuring when he really couldn't predict the future and had had no business telling them that they shouldn't worry. And um, he also presented them with a choice and told them that they had a choice about how they face the future and invited them to show up every day to give their best and help him find solutions to the business problem. And at the end of the speech, he got a a spontaneous standing ovation because people were so happy and so relieved to be told the truth and treated like adults. And so um, so that's the story of Joe. Part of the reason also that we call that chapter the dangerous book for adults, Susan, is because in many of the workplaces we encounter, uh, being authentic and tra- transparent and telling the truth as we know it can really feel like a scary and risky thing to do. Mm-hmm. And and yet, by not doing that, we're really putting an enterprise that's trying to compete in today's crazy marketplace in a really dangerous place. I think the response that these employees, the standing ovation, just goes to show how refreshing and unusual this kind of behavior from a leader actually is. I mean, they're so they're so used to the the earlier version of Joe, which. Right. You know, it was incredible take... in the moment because yeah. uh, it was really clear that they weren't uh, clapping and applauding for uh, the stellar speech that he'd given as much as they were clapping right. and applauding for the sense of uh, freedom and responsibility that they you know, could now seize. What a powerful idea. Yeah, an excellent good. story and a great way to uh, kind of frame the book out. Jamie, you, you've outlined uh, what I felt were some revolutionary new ways that organizations can approach work. And I say revolutionary not meaning so much that no one has ever talked about these things. I think people have, but I would think you know, probably most people would agree these things are, are not happening out there. For example, you talked about both doing and managing your work. You talked about the idea of moving from supervising to coordinating, and you talked about having a business literate workforce. Can you talk about some of these kinds of ideas and, and what this might look like if, if an organization could actually put them into play? Sure. I think you're appropriate in characterizing um, characterizing the issue the way that you have. We're, you know, we're not the first uh, two people to talk about some of these revolutionary ways of uh, of managing and organizing, uh, I think some of the difficulty resides in the fact that we inherited a system uh, from the early industrial pioneers and thought processes and concrete structures and practices uh, that have fundamentally separated the doing and the managing of the work. Uh, if you go back to the genesis of the, you know, the thinking, people were supposed to do what they were told. Uh, managers were supposed to figure it out and make sure they were clear and then hold other people accountable. Uh, supervisors were there to do just that, supervise, make sure, pay attention, give feedback. Um, and so undoing that uh, over the course of the what we've created over the course of the last 150 years is a difficult proposition. And sometimes it helps to go back to the basics. And the, and the basics are that most businesses are really struggling with doing two things or doing one thing simultaneously, and that is harmonizing the need for unequivocal business results uh, with creating places where people can find meaning and purpose at work. Uh, they give articulation to the notion that people people have to bring themselves fully present and find meaning and purpose in order to get the best out of people, and that contributes to bottom-line business results. Um, businesses basically care about managing four things, quality, 
productivity, cycle time, and being able to deliver unique responses to their marketplace. To do that, and they, they have to manage these things concurrently, to do that uh, requires organizational power, which we define in the book as being made up of business literacy, choice and decision-making, and accountability for results. And our bias is that uh, sticking to the, to the basics, uh, the best way to build an organization where business results and meaning and purpose are both harmonized is to distribute this organizational power, which leads to the third part of your question in terms of having a business literate workforce. Uh, it seems today people tend to talk about uh, business literacy as transparency, creating organizations where people have access to the information, where they understand what it means, where they know how to use it, so that fundamentally the people who are doing the work can, uh, can make decisions real time about the best way to make a product or to deliver a service or to engage the marketplace and that sort of thing. One example we use in the book is an example that uh, ironically, I guess at this point, comes from the automotive industry uh, a number of years ago where uh, a manufacturing plant in Michigan where I happened to be working actually reorganized itself around work center concepts so that typically people who were doing one job, running a, a lathe or a screw machine or something like that, these people were organized into work centers and each cell manufactured an entire product from start to finish and the people who worked in that cell were responsible for doing everything from the, getting the raw materials in to getting the finished product out, including inline quality inspection and that sort of thing. And so that, that is an example of, of uh, how concrete practices can change to make what we talk about work. That's a great example, you know, not only from the standpoint of the of the benefits to the business for having people that have all these various skills, but just think about how much more interesting the work must be for the employee. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, a interesting book out um that just came out recently called Shop Class as Soul Craft. Mm -hmm. Uh and this individual uh, talks about the separation of thinking and doing in our modern day workplaces which has led to these feelings of disenfranchisement and cynicism and disappointment and that sort of thing because there isn't much interesting about doing tasks as right. opposed to being fundamentally engaged with the work that you're doing. Yeah, great. Marin, accountability is something that probably every workplace would say they really desire this. This is something they really want. But could you explain how the culture of most organizations are really perpetuating this parent-child relationship and the impact of, of this approach on personal accountability? Yes, it's a, it's a fu fundamental theme of the book because we believe that conversations create culture and many of the conversations in the workplace become parent-child. Uh, if you think about it, the parent-child relationship is the one, the very first relationship dynamic we're exposed to in the world, and it's sort of baked into our DNA. So when we go to work, it doesn't really feel that unfamiliar, and in fact, it can feel very comfortable. The question we pose in the book is, you know, do parent-child dynamics in the workplace, when you've got a group of adults who come together to serve customers, achieve goals, uh, succeed in the marketplace, do parent-child conversations and dynamics really serve the business? And, of course, we don't think they do. Uh, there are three conversations in particular that uh, we take on as manifestations of parent-child uh, dynamics. And they're conversations that center on issues of, of accountability, caretaking, which we talked about a little bit earlier, and disappointment. So we talked about Joe and how he was caretaking by, you know, throughout the day, reassuring people, making promises he couldn't keep, telling people not to worry, that everything would turn out okay if they worked hard. And um, another manifestation of caretaking can also need to be very directive when supervisors can't let go and, and they want to tell everyone what to do and exactly how to do it. That's very much a parent-child dynamic, and we call that in the book caretaking. Um, Another one, uh, another conversation are, are conversations of accountability. And if you, if you just listen in any workplace you go into, any organization, nonprofit or for-profit, sometimes even in families, you hear, you hear for this conversation, how are we going to hold them accountable? Mm -hmm. How am I going to hold you accountable? 
And that really denies a fundamental reality because every individual is constantly choosing their own level of accountability. You can't foist accountability on somebody else. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about that, it's, it's, it's a parent-child dynamic. It's sort of like, I, I'm going to make you do something that I want you to do. And then the third conversation we talk about centers on conversations of disappointment. And a lot of times when we're disappointed, that will elicit a parent-child dynamic as well. Many people see cynicism as an automatic outcome of disappointment, but really we have choices about how we respond to disappointing circumstances. And we, we found that a lot of times these conversations about disappointment can be the most powerful way to derail uh, innovation or change efforts, creativity, because the conversation becomes, you know, oh, we tried that before. You know, we, we, it didn't work then, it's not going to work now. Or, or people will talk about, we can't do that because you know how they are and they're never going to change. Um, we believe it is possible and better for the business to make a choice for hope and optimism and commitment, even though we might have been disappointed in the past. But that's not typically the kinds of conversations we have at work. Yeah, I, w I would I would wonder, you know, if the, the one uh, uh, aspect of this that you just discussed, the directive kind of behavior, if we'd be seeing in our current, um, you know, economic situation, if we'd be seeing, you know, an increase in, in this kind of a, uh, a management approach and organization. I think typically that is exactly what happens. Uh, I have a friend who used to say that uh, no matter how many languages you speak, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, you curse in your native tongue. <laughs> the yeah. notion for me is that... Uh, because we have inherited and so so deeply uh, ingrained these command and control, paternalistic parent-child uh, management practices and ways of thinking mm -hmm. and so forth, that when times get tough, people go back to what they know best, and that is uh, uh, and that is command and control and telling people what to do. And I think employees collude with that as well. Mm -hmm. They um, Sometimes they like being told what to do, and they, they want to keep their head down because then if things don't go well, then they have a legitimate my fault. Than somebody else instead of taking accountability for their own contribution. Yeah. And to be fair, I think we need to say, at least I feel the need to say, that uh, you know, if, if all of us are in a building and a fire breaks out and one of us knows the way out, it's not the time to you know, sort of have a participative consensus building conversation exactly. about how do we get out of the building. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, frequently, there are times. So what happens is uh, we we tend to look at things too often as the building is burning and somebody needs to tell us how to get out of here as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, a more realistic uh, point of view of, of, of the day-to-day -day operations of a business. Yeah. yeah. Well, there certainly uh, seems to be even a lure for um, employees to, to have this kind of directive behavior um, directed towards them in, in times like this. I know every once in a while I come into the office and think, gosh, I just wish somebody would just tell me what to do. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, where are the adults anyway? And when you're running an organization, they're just not anywhere to be found. It's up to you. Uh, and that's where you are confronted, I guess, with, um, you know, the need to hold yourself accountable. Exactly. Difficult thing. Very difficult. So, so, Jamie, it's a really good segue because we already started to talk about uh, this idea of accountability, uh, holding people accountability uh, really is a myth. And, and you actually have a statement uh, in the third chapter where you uh, say, and I'm going to quote here, um, the notion that you can hold other people accountable is a myth, a dangerous illusion that denies a fundamental reality of human existence. End quote. And uh, you, so you provide um, an illustration before outlining these three predominant choices related to personal accountability. Um, could you talk a little bit about these? Sure. Uh, and I think the you know that statement that you just quoted from the book comes from somebody you know much wiser than than either one of us. Uh -huh. I think it's really sort of Viktor Frankl. A lot of our work has its roots in some of his writing. Um, but the notion is to say that. Freedom to choose how I face my circumstances and being accountable for the choices that I make uh, is a fundamental blessing and curse of being a human being. And um, so the whole idea that uh, I can somehow hold you accountable uh, 
uh, is an absolute illusion because you choose whether you will be accountable or not. You choose what you're committed to. You choose what motivates you. You choose when you're inspired. Those are all things that you are in charge of for yourself, and I have no control over. I have all I can do to worry about me <laughs> in those sets of uh, in those arenas, if you will. And where this really came clear was uh, we were working with a senior leadership team on a relatively large-scale change effort, uh, clothing manufacturing entity, and um, we were heading down the path of implementing uh, this organizational change effort, uh, working primarily at the top of the organization as people did, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And all of a sudden, a memo showed up uh, in the senior leadership team, which happens to be in the book on page 36, and it starts out by saying, before you conceive of ways to understand me, before you name me anything, I find myself with choices to make and a future to create. And then it goes on to say that I will decide um, what I make of the changes you propose to me and what I make of you, frankly. And it was written by an anonymous uh, employee to the senior leadership team. And I think that's really where the genesis of this book finally started to wow to crystallize because the whole notion that somehow we can stand up on the 32nd floor and look down at the shop floor, so to speak, and rearrange these human lives in different organizations and categories and structures and then hold them accountable to our wishes uh, is, is a really dangerous and prolific, if you will, illusion in our opinion um, because of the what this memo represented and because of uh, the fact that people do choose um, what they are accountable for. The three choices that we speak about in the book um, are really the whole notion of, uh, you know, I give you some directions and I think I'm holding you accountable, and uh, you fundamentally make the choice. Choice number one is that you choose to be accountable, and you are, and somehow I get reinforced by the fact that, gee, that worked pretty well. I can definitely hold Susan accountable now, ignoring the fact that you made that choice. A second choice you might make, though, is to just choose compliance which is the whole scenario I laid out for you doesn't make sense, but you choose to do what I say because it might be easier, because, you know, there's some fear of losing your job or there's some fear of getting a bad performance review or there's some other uh, external motivator, if you will, that you're picking up in the radar of your life that causes you to just say, okay, I'll do it. doesn't make sense, but I'll do it. And the third choice that you make is to sort of um, choose the appearance of compliance. And mm -hmm. we see this happen all the time in organizations where you make it look as if you're doing what you're told, but you're really doing what you want to do anyway. And uh, we sometimes even label these in organizations as workarounds. You know, we have uh, certain work processes that are the way things are supposed to get done, and then we have the work processes that people engage in uh, when they really do the work which is a manifestation of this looking like I'm complying but doing what I want to do anyway. I think the key point here for us is that the locus of control around those three choices is within you, not me. And uh, can we have a conversation about the choices that you might make and have some alternatives to me trying to hold you accountable? That's what sort of the rest of the book is about and the, and the, and the work that we do is about. But uh, fundamentally, you're responsible for your own accountability as a human being. Yes, we are. And, and, and Marin, you, you've already started to, to get into this topic just a little bit earlier in our conversation when you talked about uh, Joe in the introduction of the book. But I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit more specifically about the differences between what you describe as taking care of people and caretaking. And you talk about this, these uh, topics in, in Chapter 4 and where, where you actually provide an illustration of a wonderful story about a fourth grader who's name is Luke. Can you tell us a little bit about Luke and, and the lesson that he can offer each of us? You bet. Luke is a wonderful story and um, still makes us laugh every time we talk about it. Luke was uh, the friend of Zach, who is Jamie's son, and the three of them were having lunch one day after a soccer match, and suddenly Luke got very excited and he had big news that he wanted to share with them. He told them that he had been elected fourth grade executive. Well, that title alone would make you, you know, anybody laugh, fourth grade executive, right? Uh, but as Jamie started sort of asking him questions about, you know, what are your duties as the fourth grade executive, he made a statement about that one of his duties was to make sure that all the fourth graders were happy. <laughs> so even that young, at age eight or nine, 
you know, people start to take on this idea that, that they can manage other people's emotions or that they're responsible for other people's emotions. And, and it's in that sort of feeling that we make the distinction between caretaking and taking care of. Of course, when you have family and friends and people that you love and take care of, uh, that you love and care about, you know, you, you want to be thoughtful and kind and compassionate and do things for them because it's the right thing to do. But sometimes what happens is we veer over into the idea that we are responsible for somebody else's happiness or safety or security. And especially when we start doing that for adults, um, that is definitely definitely what we would consider caretaking. Because the bottom line is people really are in charge of their own emotions. They have to make their own choices about how to respond to any given set of circumstances. And if, and if I am so worried about your emotional state that I start sugarcoating the bad news or I start reassuring you that everything's going to be all right even though I have no way of knowing that, or I start withholding the truth because I'm afraid that you can't handle the truth. That might be too painful or you're going to crumble in front of my very eyes. It, um, A, it dishonors you as the adult person you are who can manage their own emotions, and B, it starts creating a relationship that you and I can't really believe in because I'm not being direct with you. I'm not being straight with you. I'm not letting you handle things in your own way. Yeah. And what a, a timely concept I mean, when you think about it, you know, in in this kind of a uh, sort of a fickle economy, I guess, uh, you know, the news has recently been said that we're out of this recession, although I think there's a lot of people that would raise their eyebrows at that. Um, you know, but uh, the numbers of, of leaders that must be burdened with that kind of thinking, that the world rests on their shoulders and they've got to make it all work out somehow, um, what timely information uh, you offer them uh, in this work with regards to that kind of thinking, how, how incorrect that is. Right. It, we do believe that it's incorrect. The, the interesting notion is that, um, you know, good people uh, in, embedded in uh, systems that need improvement, like our organizations do today, um, sometimes do kind of weird things. And, and what I, it comes from a good place when I sit back and say, don't worry, Susan, everything will be okay. The, the thing that we fail to look at is the, uh, the sort of underbelly of that because as soon as I tell you that everything will be okay, uh, you're off the hook. You don't have to worry about, it. oh, Jamie said everything will be okay, so I'll let him handle it. And at the same time, you have this sort of experience, and he's lying to me too because how can he know everything's going to be okay? He doesn't have a crystal ball that can you know sort of predict the future and that sort of thing. And uh, I guess the third issue is your version of okay and my version of okay could be could be very different, you know, in terms of what turning out okay is to you versus what turning out okay is um, to me. So that whole idea of uh, of focusing attention through the caretaking behavior on uh, everything will be okay is uh, is a difficult issue. It's interesting that you brought up the cyclical nature of the economy because um, soon after the book came out we were asked for an interview with a, a reporter from a major national magazine. And like a week before we were scheduled to talk to her, she got laid off. <gasps> and <laughs> she went ahead and did the interview because she also has she also did some work for some major Internet sites and that kind of thing. But one of the things she told us is, you know, I'm, I'm in this office of this man I've known and worked for and worked with for 23 or 24 years. He just delivered this devastating blow to me that I don't have a job anymore. And he's telling me, oh, but don't worry about it. You're smart. You've got lots of resources. You'll land on your feet. You've got a bright future. And she's like, I know all those things are true, but that's really not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to say I'm disappointed. This hurts. Um, I, I feel, you know, I feel like I'm, I don't deserve this. I'm afraid. I'm fearful. So, you know, it's interesting that we can't even be straight with each other in, in those very wow. difficult moments. Oh, my goodness. And I'm, I'm sure that organizations right now are full of some of this kind of behavior. You guys are, should be so busy that you can't even sleep. <laughs> I, I'd, like, I'd like to explore uh, the topic of, of cynicism with you, um, and this is another topic that came up a little earlier in our conversation. I'd like to get into this a little bit. 
And on, on page 61, uh, Marin, you write, and I'd like to quote, that cynical conversations are so bad for business that successfully changing this one dynamic could have a bigger impact on organizational culture and improving business results than almost anything else, end quote. Tell us about um, typical ways organizations deal with cynicism and if there is really a way to move beyond this powerful negative attitude. Um, you bet. First, let me answer your last question, which is, yes, there is. there really is a way to move beyond the powerful negative attitude, and you won't be surprised to hear us say that it has, again, to do with individual choice. Here's the thing about disappointment. It's based on history. Everyone in the world has been disappointed by something at some time, at home, out in the world, and in the workplace. And everybody has plenty of data to, to sort of back up their stories about what a disappointing world this is. And people frequently make the assumption that the automatic outcome of disappointment is cynicism, that you don't have a choice. You've been disappointed, therefore you have every right to be, to be cynical. In the workplace, often what happens is when we have these conversations with a cynic, we do one of two things. One is that we, we cheerlead them or we barter. We say, <laughs> oh, really, it's going to be different this time. You know, Jamie's really behind this, and we've got resources, and we've got new team uniforms. And, um, and a slogan. Right. <laughs> we have a vision statement on the wall. Um, <laughs> so, and so we do that, and we try and sort of coax the cynic along. Or the other thing we do is, is we collude because, of course, we've been disappointed, too. That resides within us. And so it's very easy to go down that road and say, yeah, this place really stinks. They never do what they say they're going to do. Nothing ever changes no matter how hard we try. Um, so that's what typically happens. What gets lost in those kinds of conversations is the choice that we all have to make. And one of the recommendations in the book we make about conversations is to have a have a different conversation. Now, it won't be a panacea to cynicism necessarily, but it will make visible the fact that if you if you are a cynic, it's because you're making that choice to be a cynic. Um, the new conversation could sound something like, you know, so Jamie says to me, this place really stinks. Uh, did, did you hear about the latest change effort? It's just, it's just like the thing that we did five years ago. It didn't work then. It's not going to work now. I can't believe that we have to go through this again. I'm so tired of it. And I say to him, sounds like you really don't have a lot of hope that that's going to turn out very well. And, and, and you say things like that until you get agreement that I've heard him accurately. And, and then I agree with him because, of course, I have my own disappointed data. You're right. I've been through that with you, too. I've been here in the trenches with you. In fact, I've been here longer than you have. And 20 years ago, you know, we were going through this kind of stuff. So I really hear what you're saying. Um, and then what's different about this conversation is that if I can get clear on my own commitment and say to Jamie, in spite of all this data, in spite of the fact that we've all been disappointed, I'm going to choose to be optimistic about this because I think it's a good thing for the business, and I'm really committed to it. And you know what? You could make the same choice if you want. Um, you're an adult. You have choices to make. I can't tell you what to do, but you could make that choice. I hope you do. And then change the subject, and don't try and persuade them to see things in a different way. Just, Just state your go. own choice of commitment, and um, you know, yeah. make make it clear that you know everybody has a choice to make in that situation. I, I just love this model. I, I I read through this this part of the book, and, and while we're here, I, I want to highlight something too because I want to make sure that at the end, if it doesn't get mentioned, that it's mentioned here. Um, you know, you just kind of walked people through a process, and at the end of the book, you have, you know, a number of these kinds of conversations, you know, in these difficult kinds of situations, whether you're position, positioning change or working through cynicism, and they are so excellent. I mean, they're just, uh, you know, I read them and read them and read them again and again and again. They're just so well done. Um, but I, I love the power in this, I think, you know, what you've just shared there, Marin, is, you know, that you're not just sort of pushing forward and blindly saying, you know, I know this is going to work out, that you do make yourself vulnerable and you do face up to the fact that, yeah, you you do also, you know, you don't know how it's going to work out, but you've chosen to move forward. 
and, right. and, and offering the person to make that choice. I just think there's so much power in that. Yeah, I think it's huge. Um, the, we, we draw a distinction between cynicism and skepticism. Mm-hmm. Cynicism is sort of a lack of, uh, a lack of hope or optimism. Skepticism is I need more data to round out my thinking. And so this is about the sort of emotional component. And the single most difficult part of the conversation Marin uh, shared is being able to authentically state your choice for hope and optimism in the face of the same disappointment. Right. And what we advocate for people is if you can't do that authentically, then it's just another manipulative conversation. So where the real stress test is in this conversation is, given the data I'm facing in this business or this situation, can I truly choose hope and optimism and commitment towards creating a different future? Uh, And if I can, then have the conversation. If I can't, be better off not to say anything because uh, fundamentally it'll be a reiteration of an old familiar song. Yeah, exactly. Take that day off and go home and come back when you feel more hopeful. (laughs) 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 I love it. Um, Jamie, what kinds of changes will be required for sustaining, we're talking about these adult relationships, for really sustaining adult relationships at work and creating a new culture that can support this? Yeah. The the first, they come in two or three groups, depending on the moment how I choose to talk about them, I guess. But first is at the individual level. Um, One of the activities that we do with clients to help uh, get clear about what moving towards an authentic adult-to-adult culture looks like is a, an activity we call gains and losses. And we basically say, you know, looking at this uh, this new world where power is distributed, where, uh, you know, decision-making is, is we're going to try to put as close to the customer as possible, where we're going to begin to treat each other as adults and not caretake and stand on our own two feet and recognize we're responsible for our own accountability and motivation. Looking at that picture, what do I stand to gain and what do I stand to lose as an individual first. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I obviously stand to lose is the comfort zone. Uh, One of the things that I obviously stand to gain is some anxiety about not being able to predict the future. One of the things that I I lose is the notion of consistency and predictability. And um, we have people do an assessment of that because fundamentally if you're not willing to to lose what you're going to lose in order to gain what you're going to gain, the chances are you're not going to move in that direction. You know, you sort of have to, if you have smoking as an example, you know, if, you, uh, if you're a cigarette smoker and you want to quit smoking, uh, you've got to be willing not only to give up the cigarettes, but you've got to be willing to give up everything that goes along with it in terms of the habits and what you carry in your pockets or purse and that whole nine yards. And if you're not willing to give that up, then you're not going to gain the health that you will from, from stopping. So we, we have people look at that at an individual level, and then we also have them look at it at a business unit or an organizational level because it's, uh, and it's surprising, or not so surprising now to us, I guess, but people are often surprised how similar the lists are in terms of what you gain and what you lose at the individual level and at the unit level, but it completely changes the conversation about those things relative to how do we begin to move forward. So. Dealing with gains and losses individually and departmentally is kind of the first step. Um, the second is to, to begin to make some concrete changes in the organization that um, are in the areas of management practices and structures and those kinds of things. And one of the sets of changes we talk specifically about in the book are getting clear about the membership requirements <clears throat> for a business or a business unit or whatever. Um, Business units do have membership requirements. They're implicit uh, or explicit. Uh, Some of them you gotta be there for a while to learn. Some of them they put in the employee handbook. But fundamentally, there's a set of of practices and principles and and requirements that people meet to work in a business unit. And you, you notice that when you move from one unit to another because they're different inside the same organization or you move from one company to another. So what we advocate is to get clear about what are the membership requirements here, and we outline some of them in the book. Uh, I won't go over all of them, but uh, as examples, um, a membership requirement is uh, each person has the right and responsibility to be the eyes and the voice of the business. Uh, If you take that very simple phrase and extrapolate out of it what does that mean on a day-to-day basis, it means when I see things go wrong, I can no longer be quiet about it any longer. I must speak up that uh, everybody's responsible for raising difficult issues around here. 
Um, or uh, another example would be uh, each individual is responsible for managing their own issues of morale, motivation, and commitment. And that to be a member of this unit, we expect people to begin to engage in what that means for this unit. Each individual is responsible for creating business literacy in others. Frequently, when we look at the issue of business literacy and learning, we look at, as, at it as a top-down activity. Exactly. That it's the people at the top who have to teach the people at the bottom. And our bias is, based on all of our experiences, that everybody has something to learn and everybody has something to teach, and that uh, a new membership requirement here can be that teaching and learning is as important as anything we do in the name of transparency and creation and that sort of thing. So. Um, those are a couple of examples of some uh, concrete things that can be done to uh, to change. And, you know, we have a whole list of about 30 management governance practices that can be reinvented to support adult-to-adult -adult relationships and, uh, and not give away anything relative to business results. Really powerful, powerful stuff. I'd Thank love you. to see some, some organizations, more organizations, embracing some of these kinds of ideas. And I'd like to go back to a topic that was, uh, again, raised earlier, but I'd like to go into just a little bit more detail, if I could, uh, with you, Jamie, um, about manipulation. And, uh, you know, some of the specific ways you see this playing out um, in the workplace and how managers can get to a place where they can be more genuine. They can get the results they want, but they're they're doing it in a more genuine way. Right. Uh, let's first start, if we could, with how we define manipulation in the book. Uh, manipulation, you know, really kind of has a bad rap. Nobody wants to be uh, identified as a manipulator, and nobody wants to acknowledge, basically, that they engage in manipulation. And, and uh, you know, it's a phenomenon that's not a particularly attractive to a uh, label. It's not a particularly attractive label to place on myself. Uh, the reality is, we're all guilty in some real sense. The, the definition that we put on manipulation in the book is that uh, I'm manipulating you anytime I try to get you to do what I want you to do without being direct about that. So that uh, uh, what I'm trying to do is get you to change something or I'm trying to, in, to make you change behavior, but I'm acting like I'm doing something else. Okay, and I'll fill in those blanks in, in just a second. We also talk about using language for effect which is akin to manipulation because that's when I use language to try to get a certain kind of emotional reaction from you to make you feel guilty or to make you happy or to make you sad. And, and the, the key is that when I am using the language that I am using right now to describe language for effect, I use words like make you feel a certain way. Manipulation and using language for effect is an intention not a set of techniques. So it's it's something that I'm trying to do for which then I select techniques. So I give you the impression, for instance, that I'm very interested in what you have to say, but it's only because I want to use what you have to say to try to get you to change your behavior to the way I want it to be. So I feign interest in what you're really saying, but then spin it and use it in the way I want to use it to get you to change. Is this making sense? Yes, it is. Okay. And so we have a whole list of techniques in the book that people use, and, and actually Joel, our former partner, Joel Henning, and Marin and I came up with this list just to, you know, to, to authentically own our own contribution to the world of manipulation because they're all techniques that we've engaged in oh. in our lifetime, but things like disguising agendas or creating fictions or only telling you part of the story or feigning interest, or name-dropping, or over-promising in terms of uh, what I intend to deliver. You um, feel so guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's a big room in terms of, uh, you know, will the guilty show up here? Because it's, uh, it, it's, it's about the way we've been trained. It's about the way we see other people. Uh, if we see other people as objects, then manipulation makes sense. And it's just as a sidebar, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that the dictionaries included in the definition of manipulation uh, an application toward people, that prior to the mid-1800s, it was about, manipulation was about objects, as it was defined in the dictionary. And so it's a phenomenon that we've, you know, begun to create collectively, and we're all, uh, we're all guilty, so to speak. And so the antidote to that is to basically say, okay, I would really want to try to live my life as a non-manipulative person if I can, 
and there are you know some uh, ways that we can use then language for engagement and disclosure, uh, none of which are earth shattering and and frankly we didn't really invent most of these, but uh, we can do things like uh, acknowledge doubt popular um, not a real popular thing to do in an organization. Um, we can uh, name the difficult issues directly and contribution to the problem. Uh, we can take the other person's side. We can tell the truth with goodwill. Those are all things that come from this other list of how do we begin to use uh, language for engagement and language for disclosure. The key again though is it's not in the techniques. It's in what is my intention. Um, last thing I'll say about that would be to kind of say that the difference between Dr. Christian Barnhart, who was a very skilled surgeon and taught people about heart surgery, and Jack the Ripper was the issue of intention. It wasn't about the techniques and the tools. It was about how they used the techniques and the tools. And so get clear personally about not wanting to manipulate and then begin to select from this list of, uh, of uh, skills and so forth that uh, that will allow me to be more open and, and uh, honest and that sort of thing. I, I really I have to share that I really struggled a little bit in this portion of the book and, and spent a good bit of time thinking about it, talked with my colleague here about it because, of course, in some of our work, you know, we use things like DISC and behavioral models, and, of course, what we're trying to do is help people build trust in the workplace so that they, you know, create conversations uh, in, in, um, in a way that they are helping the other person, knowing enough about the other person that they're helping that person feel comfortable. Now, our intention is never for, to teach people to manipulate each other, although I recognize that that could be what people do. Right. Really, it, it's interesting, the reactions we get from people um, when we talk about manipulation, they're generally two. One is, I would never manipulate, I don't do that. And because they don't see how common it is, it's so it's like it's like the water and we're the fish. It's right. it's a way of it's acceptable and in fact it's it's commended. People yes. get promoted if they're good at it. Yes, they the do. other thing is that people say, well, it, you know, so what? It's manipulation's no big deal. That's how we get things done. I mean, as long as we're not hurting anyone, as long as the end result is a good one, why shouldn't I, you know, massage my message to get a good result. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a real sticky wicket because who are who is anyone to say what is a good result for somebody else? So I think intention is really the key. What you just said was right on. It's like if your intention is to be helpful and not manipulative and right. you're clear on that, then, you know, nobody can tell you whether you're being manipulative or not. Only you know. Right, and, and the the other thing that goes along with that is, you know, when you use something like DISC or Myers-Briggs or, you know, any of the others that are out there designed to give uh, individuals clarity about who they are and then how they fit into a team or into a business unit, the conversations that we have about those instruments are where, you know, the manipulation really uh, sort of hides, if you will, because... Right. One thing for me to go to you and say, oh, Susan, I see your disc profile looks like this. Tell me about what that means to you and tell me how I could be of best use to you in terms of having you work on things you want to work on or uh, benefit from aspects of this that you want to benefit, what does help look like to you, and letting you frame that exactly. for me so that I know how to fit into what your world looks like from the inside out as opposed to, well, your profile is this, I'm Let me tell you what I think you need to do to improve it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, or people say, well, you know how those ENTJs are, yes. you know, and that becomes a label as opposed to seeing the person. Exactly. 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 We've actually worked with clients that um, on their name badges have their, have their Myers-Briggs profile so that others know how to approach them. Oh. And that scares me to death. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's Yeah. <laughs> not about a bad tool. It's about the way, again, the intention behind using it. Yeah, I'd love to spend an hour with you on just this very topic. Sometime we'll have to we'll have to schedule that. Um, Happy to do that if you're interested. <laughs> I, I, would, I would like to, to, to talk a little bit about something that you discuss in, in Chapter 10, Marin, where you, you tell a powerful story about a hospital emergency department that's struggling to increase customer satisfaction 
um, um, as its staff and, and also staff from other connecting services are, are struggling with this whole idea of personal accountability. Um, can you share the story with us and, and highlight what the lessons were that, that kind of popped out of the whole experience? Right, you bet. Um, this was a hospital, a fairly large hospital, where 85% of patient admissions came through the emergency room. And so it was essential for the hospital's financial health to get it right in the emergency room. But what was happening is the emergency room was just this constant scene of chaos where things were backed up, people were waiting in the waiting room for hours, way too long, or they were getting into the emergency room, but things were so crowded that people would literally be stacked up in the halls and, and the triage and the consulting would be taking place in a, in a very public way, which, you know, what patient wants to endure that? And for a long time, everybody thought of the emergency department's problem. It's like, when are those people going to get their act together, including the, the emergency department director, because she was pretty territorial. Uh, during some client work with them, you know, it, 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 the leader of the hospital, the CEO, and uh, Elizabeth, who was the emergency department director, realized that they couldn't do it alone. I mean, it, there was so much interdependency among the different departments. You know, it required help from transportation, from housekeeping to get the rooms ready and turned over quickly, from the lab, from the uh, radiology. All, all different departments sort of contributed to the situation, and they, they started to have a new conversation with folks saying, look, you've seen this as our problem. Our contribution to that is that we've been territorial, Things have got to change. The bottom line is the patient is really who matters here. The thing was that the individual departments, except for the emergency department, were doing pretty well. I mean, they were doing good work. They were, they were on budget. They didn't see themselves as accountable for the success of the whole. But the new conversations made it clear that everybody had to be accountable for the success of the patient outcome. And as the conversations began to change, we, um, there was some large group meetings that started taking place so people could get literate about what everybody contributed to the process. They started deliberating in new ways so that instead of having departmental meetings and discussing problems within a single unit, they had cross-departmental meetings um, to raise all the difficult issues so everybody was aware. And slowly but surely, these new conversations started changing the outcome the emergency room backlog was reduced significantly and patient satisfaction scores climbed significantly. And, and, you, and, the, and the thing that was really cool was people stopped saying, well, that's not really my job, that's that department's job. People started saying, oh, there's a patient who needs to take care of, you know, let, let me get this, to the next, this person to the next place they need to go. It was, it was cool. Yeah, the, the one thing that she mentions that I just really would like to accentuate because it's the fundamental change and that is that uh, that the hospital went from people choosing accountability or people being held accountable for specific work or a job, and they began choosing accountability for uh, the patient's experience. Yeah. And that changed everything. Uh, it, it changed absolutely everything. I'm certain that it did. Uh, and it was a, a fabulously powerful example um, in the book, one of many. I wish we could we could share them all, but it looks like we we are starting to run short on time here. And and I was wondering if we could wrap this up, and I'm just going to open this up, and you can both jump in um, as you as you would like. Um, but you know, let's say um, uh, if we found ourselves, if one of us found ourselves in a situation where our organization's culture is really not supporting this whole idea of authentic conversation. We're really very skilled at manipulation, and uh, many of us have been promoted for it, and it's something that's it maybe even encouraged uh, within our organizations. But we suddenly find ourselves in a situation where we must be the voice for change. So how could we put some of the concepts in your book to work for us? That's a great question, Susan. Um, one of the things that can really stymie this whole notion and idea of authentic conversations is the idea that I can only be authentic and have a conversation that's authentic if the other person is also willing to be authentic with me. And what it comes down for me, what it comes down to for me or for really anyone, is, is that you have to get really clear on the answer to a couple of questions. 
One is, who do I want to be in this world? And the second is, what do I want to create in this moment with this person? What, what, what do I want to create with this conversation? And if I'm clear that in this conversation, no matter what, no matter how you respond, that I want to be authentic, that I want to tell the truth as I know it with goodwill, that I'm, I'm prepared to own my own contributions to the problem, that I can argue your side, and um, frame choices going forward, if I'm clear on that, it really doesn't matter whether the other person chooses to engage me authentically or not. One of the real traps that people fall into here is that they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And if they are, then it sort of becomes manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. Because if they're doing it because they want to create an epiphany for somebody else and, and have the light turned on for them, or if they're doing it because, uh, well, if I have this authentic conversation, I'll show how authentic I am and they'll be inspired to be authentic too. <laughs> and that doesn't happen, then they ended up being disappointed and they have even more data that this doesn't work. And it's another form of manipulation. Sure, sure. Oh, and, and I can understand. I mean, it's hard work. It's much harder if you're not really clear on who you want to be and what you want to create. And if you're in a workplace environment where that's not common practice, it can feel real dangerous and risky. It sounds like at, at the heart of all of this, this work that you've provided and, and shared with us today, you know, is a lot of our own kind of self-work that, you know, kind of needs to form the basis of really being able to be able to use these ideas successfully. I, I Absolutely. is the only thing I can say. It, it's about self-awareness. It's about uh, me being the instrument of what I want to see created in the world. Um, you know, what did Gandhi say? Something about uh, be the change you want to see in the world. I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's exactly what it's yeah. about. Well, um, before we, we conclude our time uh, together with you, which has just been so wonderful, uh, all of your, your work and your ideas, I, I was wondering if if, uh, if you would describe, you know, I'm sure that many organizations listening to this probably would recognize that, that they have uh, some opportunities to um, uh, to improve uh, in, in some of these areas. They're, they're difficult. They're not complex, but they're, they're really difficult in, in many instances if the culture is so strong um, towards manipulation and, and some of these, um, these uh, ways of, of helping, trying to move things forward more negatively that they probably could use support. How can, how can the two of you support organizations trying to do this work? Well, we, you know, we have been doing that uh, since about 1989. Uh, first of all, and we have a, an array of um, workshops that, uh, in which this expertise is housed, if you will. Um, we customize those workshops to meet specific client needs and pull pieces and parts from, uh, we have a workshop uh, on accountability, we have a workshop on building business results called uh, Productivity, and uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's on the website. Yeah, Building Business Capacity. And we are a full-service organizational development and design consulting company, Um, we do one thing, basically. We work with clients that are interested in uh, harmonizing the demand for business results and creating places where people can find meaning and purpose at work. And so we have uh, models for changing management practices. We have models for redesigning work. We have models for changing uh, the culture to an adult-to-adult culture, all of which are accessible through, uh, through our business. And typically the way we work with clients is to build internal teams and transfer our expertise inside. We don't come in like some consulting companies with 100 people. We come in with two, maybe three, sometimes four, uh, to build internal teams that um, that are the transfer point for the expertise that can then begin to build that capacity inside its own organization. And, of course, we wrote a book. Right. And the book is actually now growth from from the work that we have done in conversations over the years. So so sort of the working with clients in this area came first and the book came as a result of that. Well, once again, I, Jamie and Marin, uh, I'd like to thank you both for this excellent work, this great resource. Uh, your book really personally challenged me. I mentioned I, I read a number of the, the sections of it again and again. 
Uh, and I'd really like to encourage uh, people that are interested in this topic uh, to purchase the book because we've really only skimmed to the surface today. Um, and once again, the book is called Authentic Conversations. And you did just mention a moment ago, I heard you, um, when, when Jamie was talking there, and I heard you mention things were on the website. And I'm assuming that it is the website I've been mentioning, www.authenticconversations.com, or is there another site that folks should be aware of? Yes, there's that one, and that will lead you to our um, consulting firm's website. The consulting firm website is henningshowcare.com, so H-E-N-N-I-N-G hyphen S-H-O-W-K-E-I-R.com. We're also on LinkedIn um, and all <laughs> yes, they're accessible, and and, um, and I hope people will tap into your expertise. And so, uh, following our interview today, I did want to invite invite people to to join in the conversation on employee engagement on LinkedIn. Um, I mentioned earlier we do have a group set up, which is called Bookends the Discussion, and uh, you can go here and you can pose questions for Jamie and Marin. Um, who will be joining us in this discussion group. And um, your colleagues and peers and other authors are also there, so please uh, chime in with your questions and your comments and um, invite your friends to join us there. And once again, uh, I'd like to thank both Jamie and Marin for being so willing to share your expertise with us today. It was just really, really great to have the time with you both. Well, thanks for the yes, opportunity. Thank you, Susan. It was truly our pleasure. Yeah, you do a very nice job. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.